Morning, everyone. Um, Anton's going to open God's Word from uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, and I'll read that um, together. It'll be on the screen in the ESV, and I'll read from the ESV. And if you've got your own device or Bible, please open that to read along. So that's Philippians chapter 2, verses from 1 to 5. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Good morning, everyone. It's, it's sort of at this time when uh, the visiting preacher comes in and he brings greetings. You know, you would bring greetings from the church that you're from. So basically this morning, mum says hi. <laughs> but that's, yeah, I, we, uh, Andrea and I worship at Maidavale, and uh, as this is the daughter church, uh, welcome to me, I guess. <laughs> but as we come around God's word, let's, let's pray. Indeed, Lord, how we need you to come in the person and power of the Holy Spirit as we take up your word and make it drive it into our hearts, Lord, into every part of us, that we would be changed to be more like Christ who purchased us with his blood. Lord, would you work among in and through your word by your spirit now, in Jesus' name. Amen. In one of those rather tragic comments and analysis of our culture, an American uh, theologian wrote some 20 years ago. He wrote, We live in mindless times, days in which millions of people are drifting along through life, manipulated by the mass media, particularly television, and hardly even know it. Few give thought to their eternal souls, and most, even Christians, are unaware of any way of thinking or living other than the secular world and culture that surrounds them. Now, that's the same today, whether it was written 10, 20, 30 years ago. And as we uh, turn in our text to Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul, the author here of Philippians, is offering us something of a, of a cure. Not quite the magic pill that we all desire to just fix all our problems, but a cure, as it were, in how to live in our mindless time. You know, there's a there is an evil in our culture. And it pervades culture, but it also comes in and pervades our churches. And so Paul helps us then to develop a Christian mind. What is that? A Christian mind. And if you have a, had a bit of a quick skim over those first five verses... Paul's only spoken a couple of sentences and we haven't even gone into the other half of his third sentence. You know, there's commas there for a reason because he keeps on going. It's like he can't stop speaking, he's got to get it down and it's just one long sentence in the original. But in verse 2 he says, complete my joy by being what? Of the same mind, having the same love, being full accord of what? One mind. 
Verse 3, he says, count or, or reckon or consider others more significant than yourselves. In other words, think about it. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is what? In Christ Jesus. For Paul, if, if you and I are going to begin to live out a real Christian life, he's going to call us to do things that we don't like doing, and that's being humble, being united, being in community, being godly. And the first place to start isn't what a lot of people say, you know, you need to be, you know, modify your behaviour. You know, but it's actually further, it's deeper than that. It's our mind, how we actually think. Thinking with the way that our mind is, is shaped, orientated and structured. And holiness is part of that. Holiness, unity, community. They are the key focus of this part of Paul's letter. Holiness in community has its roots in God's word. You see, all of us, you know, whether it's you know, the, the highfalutin theologian or just the common street person, doesn't matter... We all struggle with sin. We struggle. Whether it's a besetting sin, we weep over it. We pray for deliverance from it. We read books about it. Kurong shelves are full of it. I've been to Kurong for years. But that's just not, that's probably not a good ad. But, you know, (laughs) but we do. You know, it's this sin. Here's a book. Here's a book. We do that. We talk about it. We seek help for it. We try so hard to deal with persistent pattern of sin and it just seems like a, a, a reappearing weed. My garden's full of weeds. I tell my kids, you can pull out anything. Grandkids, you want to pull out a weed that looks like a beautiful flower? It probably is a weed. <laughs> but that's what it's like. It's continual. We've got onion weed. Anyone who knows onion weed? Yeah, exactly. It's worse than terrible. You just cannot get rid of it. But that's what it's like, trying to get rid of besetting sin. And Paul really wants to say to us, and sin that weighs us down like that is like swimming in seaweed. All you do is is address the behaviour. All you do is chop up the top off the weed, but you've still got all the rest of it to, to deal with that runs deep down below, in your thoughts, in your psyche, in who you are. See, your whole mindset has to be made over, has to be made new and and the root of godliness needs to sink deep into what we think and and that means we need a Christian mind. And that's what the Apostle Paul calls us here to do in these, just these first five verses. We could have read to, well, you can, you know, almost read right down to the end and there's so much stuff there. But we're just going to look at five verses. And it's a, it's simply asking a few questions. What, what have you got in mind here, Paul? What is a Christian mind? You know, when you call us to have this mind among ourselves, that is ours in Christ, what mind are you actually talking about, Paul? And he uses two phrases in verse 2, one at the beginning of that verse and one at the end. And it, it's basically like a bookend. In, in his way of, of answering that question. The Philippians, he says, and he's talking to us just the same, should fulfil his joy by being of the same mind. 
And at the other end of the verse, they are to be of one mind. And it's a bookend that really tells us that the Christian mind is essentially corporate in its emphasis, in its focus. You see, it's concerned with unity. It's not concerned with just the single individual, but with one another. You know, to, to think Christianly is to think about the Christian life in the context of community. It's God's people. It's the church. Why do you think Joe welcomed us as this morning? He's, he talked about the church. That's because that's who we are. We're not the church, one. We're the church, one. And again, it's, it's an emphasis that Paul repeats again and again in, in these verses, and he, he just continues that whole oneness theme and throughout the whole book. You see, our need is one of actual Christian unity, gospel fellowship. You need each other. Did you know that? Did, did, you, did you hear the list of people that are doing things here? He didn't mention people by name. There's people in the kitchen, people on the crash, people... I counted it once at Maidavale. 34 people working in the background to get church going. We need each other. I mean, I've, I have, at Mandra when I was there, I, I did do the sound, the music, preaching and everything else. No one else around. That was in the days when the church was small. But you sort of, you made do. But we need each other. We need others to help us. You know, if we're going to live for God's glory in, in the eyes of the world, in the watching world, in true gospel partnership, we need each other. If we're going to have a Christian mind, we need exactly that as well. You know, if you're going to see how you're going to think faithfully, thinking biblically, the various challenges that confront each of us, we need each other. You see, a Christian mind is, is, is a mind lived in community. It's the same mind. It's one mind. We, we cultivate it together. And between those two bookends of having that one mind, Paul explains, he unfolds it, as it were, to have this one, one mind. He says you are to have the same love in full accord. And the phrase in verse 2 is having the same love. But it's not to say that your love can be different. It shouldn't be selective. You know, sometimes my love is to you, but not to you. Your love is actually to be even-handed, the same. It's to be generous, to be equal, available to all, to be shared. And as the ESV translates it, it's, you are to live in full agreement. If you have one mind, it, it really misses much of the beauty of the original. I mean, in our Bible study group, we, we have those who have particular versions and their aversions or good versions of it. But, but this is one time, and I love my ESV, and um, it hasn't quite captured it. Because it says literally, you are to be of one soul. One soul. And, and that's beauty there. That's what we're supposed to be together. Here's Christian unity. It is unity that's so profound that you and I have one soul, as it were, between us. Intimate, profound. 
like all our faculties in a single person. That's what it is. That's how Paul wants your mind to be of purpose and thinking, to be like that in Christ. One soul. It's not like the Borg, you know, we're going to take over. But just one soul in Christ. It thinks about the brothers and sisters around you. Take a look. Have a look. Turn around. Have a look. Who, who, who are you worshipping with? Who are you in church with? You need, to, you need each other. Yeah, I know. Some of you are siblings. Deal with it. <laughs> but you know what? That's what it's about. Living together as family. A Christian mind is a mind, as Paul's going to say to you, is a mind that does not seek self first, but seeks the good of your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what it's to mark your fellowship here at High Wycombe. And there'll be, that'll be great evidence of actually being made more like Jesus. And that penetrates right into the depth of your thinking. Not just, it's not just about doing. You know? There's no such thing in one sense as a personal relationship with God if by personal you mean something private and reserved for you, something kept secret. No, it, it, there is so much more. Living for each other, with each other. Resting on one another as you seek to live that Christian life. And then Paul turns, turns the volume slightly differently. It's like the volume's the same, but he's, he's tweaked the settings. And he, and he goes, well, how does this actually work out? And he says it negatively. And then he says it positively in verses 3 and 4. And in verses 3 and 4, he, he says it in a negative way. He says, you are not to live from selfish ambition or conceit. Now, Paul's already used the, that word, selfish ambition. He's describing those in, in chapter 1 who preached Christ out of envy, trying to bring Paul down to compete with him because they're jealous of who he is. And, simply, and similarly, the word conceit simply means empty of glory or vain glory, I think some of the translation. That's what motivated these guys. They want to make a name for themselves. And Paul's warning you and I that in, in the church of Jesus Christ, anything that seeks to promote self at the expense of others is, well, it's idolatry for starters, but it's a, a contradiction of your profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And, and he's going to make a, the point, and you can read all of that in verses 5 to 11. He shows you Christ himself, Christ's example, your union to him. You know, it's, it's inconsistent that you follow Jesus, that you love Jesus, that you seek Jesus, and then you seek your own glory as well, and your own praise. You know, and that's what he's saying, don't let your lives be like that. You know, the kind that manipulates or puts selfish and you know, self first. You know, the church is no place for relational gains or engaging in power plays. I've seen it done and it, it ends badly every time. Not about having, having your own or getting your own way or the recognition that you deserve or about being given a, a, a good standing. You know, don't worry about how many followers you have on Facebook. That's not what it's about. It's about Christ, his kingdom, his church. That's what Paul would say to you. 
But then he says it to you positively. What are you to do? Count others more significant than yourself. It's not about wallowing in some self-pity. Oh, woe is me and, you know, I'm useless and worthless. No. But you are to count others more significant than yourself. You're made in the image of God. You're his bear, bearing his image. You are one of his. You're a child of God. But consider others more significant. In verse 4, let, let each of you look what? To his own? No. Not only to his own. That doesn't mean you can't just, you know, you haven't got things to do for yourself. But he says also to the interests of others. Value others. Value one another so much that you willingly place yourself at a disadvantage for their welfare, for their benefit. When's the last time you actually did that? When, when, when's the last time you disadvantaged yourself for someone else? With no thought of what you would get out of it. You know, someone else is benefited. That it might be directed to Christ. That, you know, it's just part of Christian obedience. That's what you did. Just out of a natural thing you did. Looking out for others' interests, not just your own. Disadvantaging yourself that... Brothers and sisters may have every advantage as they seek to make progress too in, in this Christian life we do together. You see, this is about humbling ourselves. Being humble. What does he say? It's all about humility. That's the source of renewing our mind. Renewing our mind to be like Christ. He says in humility, or sometimes it's translated, in lowliness of mind. Count others more significant. Humility is not just about action. It's actually a, a deep, settled commitment. It's a deep, settled direction. The way you are thinking, a framing of your thinking. You're determined to serve others, putting others first. I mean, pecking orders are, you know, unavoidable fact of life. You know, I've got a boss... My apprentice has me, I'm a boss. But, you know, in the pecking order of life, that, that's about where it goes. And then my wife has the ring of power, of course. But, you know, that, that's part of the pecking order, isn't it? And we have that in, in our society. I, I just look at the last week's choosing of a new premier for our state. There's a pecking order if you ever want to see one, you know. The unions are telling us who we are to have as our leaders. But that's, that's us, pecking order. Well, Philippi was that too. It's a Roman colony. Society is ranked by, by, uh, shaped by rank and prestige and, and position. You know, it's, it's almost like one of my former colleagues at a place I worked with. She had like 3,000 friends on Facebook and I'm going, how many of them do you really know? Well, m maybe a handful, you know. I try and keep mine to a handful because that's how much I can count to 10. <laughs> You know, but, but that's what it's about, isn't it? It's not seeking to, well, I've got to be better than you. And there's a pecking order here. It's extremely important in Philippi, where Paul's writing this letter to. And the word is really used. To, that lowliness of mind was basically saying the mentality of those who are right at the bottom rung of the ladder. 
Yeah, that's we, we try and tell our young kids. You know, you've got to start sweeping the floors rather than being on the big CNC machine like at our work. But no, they want to do that, but they don't want to do, you know. And sometimes you have to start at the bottom, and that's what he's saying: lowliness, lowliness of mind. You know, it's about the slave's mindset. You know, no importance. Humility's, you know, that's part of what you did. In our culture, how do we use the word humility? You know, it, it doesn't happen really, does it? I mean, I only have to look at, at the news and the talking heads that are our politicians and our... I'm not saying there's no good politicians. Uh, there are some godly men and women in our parliament who do stand up for Christ, but others... There's no humility at all. And so... You can just see that. It's part of where we are and what we are in our lives, in our culture. And we are no different from Philippian society back in its day, 2,000 years ago, where all you want to do is make a name for yourself, climb the ladder, social status is important, where you are just inclined to vain glory. To be like Jesus is actually to have a different mind, a totally different mind. It's to look increasingly like Jesus, who, what did he say? Did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, stripped himself of the clothes of majesty and became among us as a slave. If you're a follower of Jesus, self-glory, rather than servant-hearted humility, is that the, is that the character? then you've wandered far away from the truth. It's to be a slave, like Christ. Kent Hughes, uh, he came to Trinity back when I was there many years ago, tells the story of a conductor of uh, a symphony orchestra who was once asked, what's the most difficult instrument to play? Anyone have a guess? Well, we, we're close. He responded, second violin, because I can find plenty of first violinists. <laughs> you see, we have that saying, don't we, playing second fiddle. We don't like to do it, do we, at all. We want to be up the front, making it our ambition. But what's he saying? Make it your ambition to do what? Take second place for the sake of others. Then you'll have harmony. Then you make a beautiful sound that glorifies God and actually will reach the world. And yet it's true to, to have that kind of humility. It's going to cost you. It's going to cost you. It's going to mean the death of pride. <laughs> That's hard. You know, but, but why? If it's going to cost me so much, then why do it? Why adopt a slave's posture of humility being right at the bottom of the ladder? Well, notice the four if statements back in verse 1. Here is the reason why. If any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from love, if any participation uh, in the Spirit, if any affection and sympathy... It rests on these, doesn't it? And the fourth if statement on affection is really 
a summary statement, if you like, and stands on its own. If any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, if any anticipation in the Spirit and any affection, sympathy, fulfil my joy by having the same mind. You see, affection and sympathy are sort of summary statements. And these are really, the other three are really an echo of Paul's Trinitarian thinking. You see, the whole lot is embedded in, in God, the three in one. It's a parallel verse to the great doxology that we're all familiar. You know, the grace of the Lord Jesus, the love of God, the communion or fellowship of the Holy Spirit. He's using a Trinitarian formula. He's saying if there is any comfort flowing to you from being loved by God the Father, if, the, if you enjoy the fellowship, the participation, communion of the Spirit in your life, if in summary if there's any affection, any sympathy, any spiritual blessing flowing to you from fellowship with the Almighty God, Father, Son and Spirit, that ought to show in the way you act, the way you think. He's saying something quite glorious. It's, it's extraordinary. If you are a Christian and you too should have been swept up into fellowship with the Father, the Son and the Spirit, <clears throat> who have turned toward one another in an ending exchange of mutual delight and love. You and I, we're weak, we're sinful, we're foolish, we're ordinary people. We are swept up into that. We are swept up into that love and fellowship of the Trinity. To be a Christian is to belong to that community that has existed eternally in the Godhead. It's to share in it, to participate in it, to be made the recipient of it. And this is expressed in the fellowship of the church. Yeah, right here, right here this morning. And if you're a receiver of it on the vertical plane, it should show itself here on the horizontal. If you are a Christian participating in glorious communion with God, it's got to mean that we begin to live it out in how we commune with one another. You can't know the triune God and not love your brothers and sisters in Christ. What does the Apostle John say to us in 1 John? If anyone says he loves God and hates his brother, what's he do? He's a liar. The truth's not in him. You can't have one and the other. To know God involves fellowship, community of the three persons of the triune God. And that should propel each of us as a child of God out into community and unity in the, in the church. Can you do it? You see, this is, this is about one of those, you know, you, the, uh, you bring it out, it's called a project. This is a, this is a community project. It's a church community project. You can't be a Christian on your own, in a sense. It's a contradiction, because God's redeemed us all to be community. And having a Christian mind is that community project. God himself is involved in reconfiguring, rearranging, as it were, all the furniture of our mind if we dwell in and on him. He wants that to be something you're all involved in as well. There's no privatised Christianity. 
you know, you might be discussing Christian things at a, at a restaurant and the staff are interested maybe and, you know, they comment, you know, that they've made a, conf- a profession of faith in Christ and when you ask them, which church do you go to, most of them go, well, I don't go to church. You know, they haven't been led to go to church. And that makes us think how easy church is about me. You know, I don't have to go or, you know, it's just it's me and my God or me and my Jesus or... As I saw on one uh, T-shirt, you know, my, uh, my it, it wasn't very uh, nice, but, you know, Jesus is my toy boy type thing on the T-shirt. That was the nice part of what it was on the thing. But that's how we think as church. Oh, yeah, it's our thing, not anyone else's. And so we need to rethink that, don't we? Yeah, it's not just my personal relationship in Jesus. You know, we, we all know what they say about mysticism, don't we? It begins in mist, ends in schism, and in the middle is I. And that's how it works, sadly. It's individualistic, and it's not what Paul wants us to do here. It's not just me, Jesus, and my Bible in my corner on my own. But rather it's me, Jesus, the Christian community, living together. It's not just here, but it's the hereafter as well. We enjoy fellowship with one another. We enjoy God together. But how do we do all of this? How do we really do it? Well, Paul tells us a couple of things in verse 5. Have this mind which is yours in Christ. It's union with Jesus. It's being part of that community. It's not something you and I can manufacture. I can't pull out a G-code and print off something on the machine. That's not going to happen, and it's called Christian mind. We, we just don't have it in us. We have a fleshly mind, and it's something we receive in Christ. He creates in it. He builds it up. He begins. He transforms. God, by his Spirit, takes his word, and he begins to shape everything in our mind in the context of fellowshipping with Jesus. You see, there's no point trying to live a a Christian life if you're not united to Christ. It it just can't be done. There's there's no two ways about it. Round hole, square box thing? Or is it the other way around? You can't fit a square peg into a round hole. Watch me, I can. But that's another thing. But you know what? You can't be... have a Christian mind and follow Christ if you're not united to him. You have to. The the question is, are you in Christ? Are you a Christian here this morning? And verses 5 to 11 will show you to receive the Christian mind is, is actually just following the example of Jesus. And Paul sets out this whole extraordinary Christian hymn with this Remarkable pattern all the way through verse 5 to 11, describing the very mind of Christ. He's saying if you're in him, this is, he, this is who he's making you to be like. It's the template. It's the pattern. Make his life your study. Make his pattern your constant focus as you seek to conform your life to the standard of a holy God. Imitate Christ. 
aim to be like him. I don't know if uh, some of you younger ones may or may not remember the time of the, the WWJD bracelets. What would Jesus do? Me? Not a fan, okay? Don't, don't, don't say you had one, okay? What would Jesus do? You know, he doesn't. Paul turns it on his head. He says, what's he done? Not what's he going to do. What's he actually done for you? Well, everything. Gives himself, lays down his life, takes the slave's position, pours himself out for the people of God. What more extraordinary thing do we need? That's what Jesus did do. And that's what we as Christians are called into. If you want to have that Christian mind, follow him. That's the way. May God be gracious to each of us as we work that out. Having a Christian mind to his praise, to his glory. Let's pray. Indeed, Lord, we thank you that Jesus is that pattern, as well as our great Redeemer. Lord, we're thankful that we have that Christian mind in union with him. Lord, help us to be what we really are, to live out that union in Christ. Lord, give us grace to follow his example. And Lord, any of those here that don't know Christ, save them from any attempt at trying to be what they are not. Help them come to you, to Christ, and ask for mercy, for cleansing and grace. Lord, help us now, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.